and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And before we get to our guest, Kobus, a few housekeeping items that I wanted to uh, to attend to. First, uh, we just crossed a very important milestone on the podcast this month, 50,000 downloads this month alone. That's the first time that's happened. So I want to issue, on, on behalf of Cobus, a, a warm welcome to, to everybody who's new listening to the show. We, we podcast two or three times a week. Uh, I'm over here in Vietnam. Cobus is in South Africa. And, uh, and part of what we do uh, on the show is we invite people like Kai Xue, who is a uh, project finance lawyer based in Beijing, who advises Chinese companies not only in Africa, but also elsewhere around the world. Kai Xue, welcome back to the show. Uh, thank you, guys. And uh, Kobus, Kai Xue has been a very interesting contributor to the broader China-Africa debate over the past few months. Uh, first, we, we saw him earlier in the year talking a little bit about Chinese companies, and we had him on the show. Uh, Kai Xue, you were very, very good to come on the show, I think it was about six months ago, and talking about kind of the, the mentality and the strategy that the Chinese have in Africa. Then Jane Goodall came out, famed primatologist, uh, and she... Uh, accused China of exploiting Africa for its natural resources and really emulating what European colonialists did. Kai Xue then came back out and offered a very, very articulate rebuttal. But most recently, there was an article in Think Africa Press uh, by Jacob Kushner that came out, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it was about two weeks ago, March 6th. Risky business is China wavering in Africa. And we had a discussion about that on an earlier podcast and the second of my housekeeping items that I want to attend to today is an apology to Jacob, in part because during that discussion, I, I brought up his background, and I, and I insinuated that because he doesn't have an extensive background in China-Africa reporting, he's written an e-book on this, and he's lived and spent quite a bit of time in the Congo, that that somehow undermined his debate, and I was wrong for doing that, and I do apologize, because in, particularly in the Sino-African field, everybody's new to it. And so we can't judge people by their backgrounds, we have to judge them on the work, and we're hoping to have Jacob to come back on the show again uh, to talk about his ideas. As, uh, as, as those of you who listened to that show, uh, I in particular disagreed with some of the premises that Jacob raised in that. But we're going to go deeper in that today to talk about whether China is wavering in Africa. Kobus, before we get started, and for those who may not have heard the previous show where we talked about the article in detail, can you just give a broad overview of, of the key issues that Jacob raised, and then we're going to get to Kai Xue to talk about his points and his contribution to that part of the debate. Yes, um, Jacob made the point that that a few big deals um, between African governments and and, and Chinese f banks, m mega banks, have have uh, been a bit wobbly recently. So he, he raised the um, you know kind of situations in the DRC, in Gabon, I think, um, and in Ghana. Um, and in each of those, um, there's there's been cases where um, you know kind of where, where terms de um, loan terms had to be renegotiated, sometimes from both sides. Um, and uh, you know, kind of, and, and he made the point that uh, whereas China used to be seen as this kind of very gung ho investor who, who tended to jump into into some quite volatile African um, environments, now they they might they might be 
retreating a bit, or, or not, maybe not retreating, but but becoming a bit more cautious, um, but more hesitant. Um, this week also saw um, an interesting article in um, Christian Science Monitor that that pointed out that um, you know that the Zimbabwean government had been trawling for um, for a bailout from China, um, and that they'd been campaigning quite hard for for a Chinese bailout because the Zimbabwean government is in serious financial trouble, and they can't learn from anyone else because they're so controversial and, you know, kind of there's sanctions against them. So, um, and then recently uh, um, a delegation came back from Beijing with nothing, essentially. So the Chinese simply refused to to offer a bailout, making the point that that's not really how they finance anyway, you know. So, um, so, so the issue that was interesting that we were wondering about is whether this can be linked into that, into the narrative of hesitancy or whether there is another narrative that actually makes more sense. Well, let's start with the African side. Two, Kaishuya, two kind of phrases that we've heard in the past couple of weeks and months is one, African governments are, quote, pushing back. That's that's one of the, the kind of the language tools that, that, that we're seeing in the media. And then also you brought up this idea that, you know, China is, 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 wa- is well, Jacob brought up the idea that China is wavering, but that there's a, a more risk-averse approach in Beijing to, 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 their, to their investments in Africa. So let's take a look at that. And in the Jacob Kushner article, you talked about, quote, what Exim Bank didn't anticipate is what extent other parties such as the IMF would meddle in their settled deal. And I guess this goes to my point that the relationship between China and Africa is evolving to the point where it's far more complex than it once was even just five or six years ago. What did you mean about Exim Bank Un, not anticipating those uh, that meddling from the IMF. Well, that 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 was a casual comment by me. Uh, I I didn't work on this project, so I don't have any in-depth viewpoint. But I, I would say, of course, that what what happened in that deal, as we all know from public sources, is that they they had their agreement and. Um, Unfortunately, it uh, was broken apart because of IMF intervention. Uh, the IMF would not allow the Congo DRC to provide a sovereign guarantee over the loan. And that was in part because the IMF was – there was a lot of concern in Washington that the, that, this would, that the Chinese would eclipse the IMF. And there was this panic, if I recall, that set in that says, we have to challenge the Chinese on this particular deal because it will then allow the Chinese to really rival the IMF. Kobus, is this a broader concern in the development community that the loans and the amount of money flowing in from China uh, is dwarfing what the World Bank and the IMF used to bring in and thus ultimately diminishing the role of these international NGOs coming to the point where what Kai Shui brought up is that they have to then get back in and and really use a heavy hand to to insert themselves in these deals. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure that I would necessarily go along with that. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not an aid expert, but you know, kind of my feeling is also. I mean, I I, I can probably I can imagine that they, that that might be behind closed doors. That might be a concern, but I think one of the one of the issues um, that that drove the World Bank's intervention in this case was also a concern that the DRC was getting over indebted, um, because I mean, debt in the DRC itself has always been a problem. I mean, it's it's in massive amounts of debt. Um, so I think there was there was concerns also that that the deal would put the DRC government on the hook 
unduly or that or that you know kind of that it's it's in danger of 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 kind of saddling the DRC with with an um, an unsustainable amount of debt. Kashi, am, am I right in that? Uh, that that well that that was the publicly spoken of reason. I mean, I mean, I'm I'm, I'm not speculating. I'm not speculating into what their motives are, because I I just don't know. But I, I I will say, I mean, look at what that debt was going to go into. It was going to go into uh, developing assets that would produce income for decades into the future. It was going to go into building uh, transport links that would help everybody create wealth that would reduce the, the price of anything on the shelf anywhere in the DRC. So it, basically, that was good debt that was going towards alleviating poverty. So... I, I do wonder why the why the IMF couldn't uh, you know couldn't be more accommodating could, couldn't couldn't see that this was the good quality of this debt. Well, I think a lot of people looked into this deal and in Johanna Janssen as well is and looked at this and said that well the Chinese are benefiting far more than the Congolese are. That was certainly the line taken by the BBC in one of their in-depth reports. And so I think part of the concern too was that this deal was favored too heavily in favor of the Chinese, and that wasn't sustainable or healthy as well. Well, uh, you know, the, um, the, the payoff for China would occur over 25 years. And over the course of that time, uh, a lot of things could happen. And, you know, the, the down payment would be made by China in the first few years in terms of uh, construction of vital infrastructure. That would first be done. Some of that would first be done. And then the mine would be developed, and then the extraction would happen. And over, you know, the course of 25 years, um, the current government could be, um, you know, violently deposed, and uh, the new government would, no doubt, you know, from the spoils of victory, there would be a review of the agreement, and uh, there would be renegotiation and a new signature bonus and um, and a lot of things. And 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 not just that. I mean, let, let's say there was a continuation of government into the next few decades, and there was a recovery in in copper prices, and that and be, because copper prices would be so strong, um, it, it it would appear that the terms were too favorable to China, more than anticipated now. Uh, well, I, I mean, the DRC, the government holds much in the way of cards, and and it could have been renegotiated if that were to happen. So, I, I, I mean, the, the, the prospect that terms are locked in right now for the next 25 years is, is illusory. And um, it, 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 it's really not a, a critique that any sophisticated person should um, follow. Um, you've, you've mentioned in, in, your, in a recent article that um, African governments are becoming more assertive um, and, and more, they tend to more frequently renew contracts, especially in countries that, that are emerging from conflict. And certainly um, over the last year and a half or so, we've seen uh, this kind of rising chorus in, from African leaders ca- calling for African governments to be more assertive in their relationship with, with China. Um, do you see, is, is this a kind of an um, African governments taking up a position 
a, a more equal position, or is this a situation more where where African governments are trying to to kind of cash in on, for example, um, you know, kind of unexpectedly expensive commodity or like high commodity prices, or you know, kind of in in order to to kind of position themselves profitably. I mean, is this a is this a, a kind of a how can I say, kind of a, a historical correction, you know, kind of becoming, become taking on a kind of full, full role-playing ability, or is it an overreach? Um, well, in, in terms of um, a search, I mean, a servedness by by host governments. I, if, if I were to generalize, I, I would try to divide the continent into uh, English-speaking Africa and French-speaking Africa. Um, so, 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 for example, if if there is pushback from, say, Zambia or Ghana, you know that that might often be because uh, the government was elected under that mandate to more rigorously enforce uh, environmental laws, for instance, or immigration laws, and and and, and so that that's a pushback of a different nature than than say. Um, in in a lot of French-speaking Africa, where you know there might be a capricious decision to to raise funds at the last minute to to su- support a campaign, um, so 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 these are I mean they're they're very different kind of pushbacks that you see. How are those pushbacks interpreted in Beijing? The Chinese are very familiar from their experience in other parts of the world. And when I say the Chinese, I'm largely referring to the the major corporations uh, and the state-owned enterprises. Uh, In the United States, there's a long legacy of pushback. In Europe, there's a long legacy of pushback. Um, How how is that interpreted when environmental labor and, and trade assertiveness is is imposed from the host government towards the Chinese. What's the reaction, do you think, in Beijing? Uh, well, th- there is, in general, a confidence among the borrow. I mean, the um, the investors, that uh, that there is strong governmental connection, strong diplomatic support, and so I think there's that there's that tendency to to believe that that things can be negotiated. That that pushback is just. Uh, just a counteroffer, or just one round in the course of negotiations, and uh, maybe things will be suspended, and then things will be restarted. But it can all be worked out at high levels. Um, I was wondering what you made. I mentioned a bit earlier what you uh, the, the Zimbabwean delegation returning empty-handed from from Beijing. I wonder what you made of that, and whether it fits into a kind of a narrative that uh, the Chinese lenders are becoming a bit more careful about this kind of this stereotyped idea that that China tends to lend very freely to to oppressive governments in Africa. I, I mean, I, I can't think of that as some indication that there's a policy shift in in, in terms of relations with uh, with regimes that that are from the perspective of the the U.S. and EU are are considered enemy dictatorships. Um, I, I I don't see any indication of a of a change in policy towards governments classified that way. But um, uh, but but in any case, I I think um, I I did see the CS Monitor article, and it seemed to me premature in its conclusions, in that this this may just be another round in negotiations, and there will be another round, and then something will be concluded then. 
I guess there, there eventually will. I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I I think I agree with you that the, the 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 CS monitor may not have done a good job in terms of providing the necessary context, in part because, and I'd like to get your your take on this. The Chinese foreign policy establishment, all the way from the in the leadership as well, places an enormous amount of value on loyalty. And, and 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 Mugabe, if nothing else, has been loyal to the Chinese, dating all the way back to the you know to the Zhou Enlai era, and and I, it's not typical for the Chinese to leave their their friends alienated and isolated like this. And so I would think I don't know. I mean, it just seems to me that he'll that they'll give a fig leaf of some kind to them. I actually, um, you know, kind of what struck me was in the same in the same week as the CS Monitor, um, you know, kind of article came out. There was another article um, referring to China kind of expressing cautious interest in in um, in investing in a platinum refinery in in Zimbabwe. So, you know, kind of it seemed to me that maybe what what was maybe maybe not misunderstood, but but you know, kind of what maybe wasn't made clear enough in the article was that this kind of big bailout of of a government in in trouble is not really necessarily how Chinese financing works and that they and that the you know kind of if there is some kind of project that that seems realistic and you know kind of with a kind of a realistic timeline then they might well you know kind of invest and, and it, it doesn't necessarily you know kind of reflect any kind of cooling down towards Zimbabwe as, as a government or as a country I, I don't know if you agree Kasia. And, you know, I, I I don't necessarily feel there's, you know, I mean, politically or even economically, there's a cooling down towards Zimbabwe. I mean, I, I do know that um, one of the XM loans, that this was one of the major XM loans. I, I don't remember when it originated, but it was for, it was support of agriculture, particularly tobacco cultivation in Zimbabwe. And it has been just tremendously successful. Um, uh, I, I believe uh, the the output last year in tobacco was um, from Zimbabwe is pr- actually pretty close to the the record um, uh, output in the year 2000 during that era of um, you know white land ownership, and, um, and 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 so there there is a track record of that success, and. But I, I also believe that XM loan, the repayment was suspended last year. So there, there's, you know, probably more in-depth problems than... Um, yeah, um, than no, all, yeah, I agree with you on that. And take into account also last week, Cobus, was that there was an announcement of a $750 million gas-fired power plant that's uh, Chinese financed. Mm, also, yes. there was uh, a big cotton deal announced in uh, about two months ago as well. So what we may be seeing on these kind of bailout discussions may not be representative, as Kai Shue says, in terms of the overall sentiment towards Zimbabwe. Uh, Kai Shue, one other key point that I thought, I thought back to uh, Salva Kiir in um, South Sudan. Remember when he came back from Beijing, he said, guess what, everybody? We're getting $8 billion from China. And then they got nothing. Uh, and, you know, the, in, the, the, in Zimbabwe, they said, we're getting $30 billion. Then it was $15 billion. Then it was $4 billion. Then it was nothing. Um, that maybe the Chinese don't like, A, to negotiate in public. B, they don't want to see host governments get ahead of themselves. And C, they'll slap them down when they do. And, and they're not, they won't be afraid to do that when they do so that they don't come off as being some kind of sugar daddy. Uh, I might be completely misreading this, but it just seems interesting that the South Sudanese example, as well as the Zimbabwe example, both had the same outcome. It, it just shows that in a few cases, there were 
premature declar- you know, declarations by um, two host governments, and I'm, 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 I'm not sure you know, much can be read into the behavior of negotiations from, uh, from those two instances. Okay, you're much more measured than I am. Thank God, Kobus, <laughs> that guy uh, is there to put some good context for it. Context is another thing that you did excellently. Uh, actually, that's not a word. Very, very well. Uh, when Jane Goodall came out with, uh, which really, okay, well, let's just kind of see what Jane Goodall said. Earlier, she did an interview uh, in February with the French news agency Agence France Presse. And, and let me read a few quotes from Jane Goodall, and then we'll follow up with some reaction that Kai Xue did. Uh, quote, in Africa, China is merely doing what the colonialists did. They, went, they want raw materials for their economic growth, just as the colonialists were going into Africa and taking the natural resources, leaving people poorer. Now, what was interesting is that not surprisingly prompted a, uh, a, a passionate feedback from the somewhat nationalist uh, state-funded Global Times newspaper. Uh, and then uh, they wrote that um, under the, the name Wu Yi, now that's one of the new tactics that the Chinese official media is doing, is they're not coming under the banner of an editorial, which they used to do. They're actually assigning either real journalists or uh, kind of ghost names to it. So they said, quote, it's not only insulting, it's wrong in many aspects. The European colonialists invaded Africa, dominated Africans, and took the continent's resources for nothing, while the Chinese conduct business with, with the African and pay reasonable prices for whatever they could. It's a huge difference. Kaishuya, you then came out with, uh, with a piece in, that I saw in Business Day Live, which is a South Africa, uh, no, I'm sorry, the Sunday Times uh, that I saw it. It was all over the web. And you had a lot more nuanced take than even what was came, coming out of Global Times. What was your reaction to Jane Goodall's point of view? Well, I, 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 I look back at that piece and, and per- perhaps I was too harsh. I mean, uh, you know, I, I didn't get very good reaction from it from, uh, you know, readers of the Times. Why? And, um, what, what was their reaction? Because Jane Goodall is a saint. Ah, okay. It's like, you know, it's like criticizing, you know, Mother Teresa. Criticizing Mother Teresa, literally. <laughs> it, it might even be somewhat, um, you know, seen as incitement to, uh, uh, you know, to, to try to, 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 you know, to dredge up you know, decades back history and uh, uh, approach it from a very post-colonial or critical theory viewpoint. And basically, you know, I, you know, I, well, well I, I mean, I, I do regret a bit writing it, actually. Really? Because I, 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 I see how she, you know, she just, she, she gave an interview and um, it was not prepared. I mean, it was not an essay that she published, okay. and it was um, off-the-cuff comments. And and perhaps it might have really just reflected anger over rhino or elephant poaching rather than any sort of critique based on political economy. And um, and and also, you know, I I, I I tend to see now how you know language shifts. And I, I suppose it's almost futile to to try to go back to the dictionary definition of colonialism, because you know new meanings appear, uh, words change, and I think right now what has happened is that there's there's a new new meaning to the word colonialism, and it just vaguely means something about um, 
a, a trade. I mean, a, a relationship between a developing country and a strong power. It's interesting, Cobus, because you and I talk about a lot the frustration we have and that we've had in this in this field about lacking a vernacular that accurately describes what's happening here. I've said that this is far more like a tributary type relationship, in, and that fits within the context of Chinese history, uh, whereby you have a very dominant power and a and a subservient power, and that's that really goes back thousands of years in the Chinese playbook. Uh, colonialism is not part of the Chinese playbook, which is one of the reasons why the Chinese react so passionately to the accusation. But, Kobus, to your point, uh, I mean, to what do you think of Kai Shui's point that colonialism is really a metaphor for the potential abuse of the relationship, whether or not it's rooted in its imperial tradition in the European context? Yeah, no, I, I, um, I take your point. Um, I tend to um, tend to argue the other direction a little bit, in the sense that, um, but you, you know, kind of, I'm I'm an academic, obviously, which means that you know, <laughs> academics have the freedom to be as pedantic as they want, um, and the you know, kind of, it seems to me that there is a certain kind of value in in trying to argue the concept of colonialism back to to its actual. 19th and 20th century reality in this because otherwise the people who died and suffered under colonialism i mean they were erased their suffering and their very lives were erased by colonialism so if colonialism itself shifts if if that meaning shifts and if 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 the shift in meaning isn't isn't kind of if we don't wrestle it back a little bit to 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 widen the meaning again then they essentially just disappear those people, the people in Africa in the 19th and 20th centuries who suffered under actual British, French and Portuguese colonialism, they then disappear. And in a sense, we then do colonial Europe's job for them because colonial Europe was interested in making these people disappear. And now we are helping them to make them disappear, which, you know, kind of so, so in that sense, I, I tend to to want to be the, the the kind of annoying person in the room who wants to go, no, no, this isn't actually what colonialism means. But I, I completely take a point in the sense that, you know, kind of we need we need a way to to discuss a kind of a dis, discomfort that people feel with the, 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 the power differential between African countries and the outside world. Um, and in that sense, you know, obviously colonialism is, is the, 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 the one that, that jumps immediately to mind. But I don't think, for example... You know, kind of to, to take a controversial or a, a very loaded kind of uh, uh, you know kind of comparison. I think, for example, the Holocaust as as a concept is used much more specifically now than colonialism is used. You know, kind of, and and it's not. Um, I, I find you know I, I find a, a certain frustration when colonialism is used in such a kind of a wide fuzzy kind of way, while a concept like the Holocaust is used in a very specific way. I find it a very similar kind of. Um, frustration when apartheid is used in this kind of general way to just mean people who are made to live separately. Um, while apartheid was a very specific system that, that created very specific kind of kinds of suffering. Um, and so, so I have this like a little bit of like a scratchy kind of feeling, like a frustrated kind of feeling when, when people don't want to do the word to think up a, the, the work to do, think up a new mm. word, but rather just reappropriate that kind of old word and in the process that kind of wipe out whole, whole 
kind of centuries of suffering. But, you know, again, being, you know, an academic who spends his life in a library, that's, you know, kind of that, that's fine for me to say. Um, it, you know, kind of it doesn't work that way frequently in the world of journalism. Uh, well, I, I, I also agree from that, that point of view that um, when, when these words mutate and become blurry, then, then also the concept becomes blurry. And uh, then, then the problem is then there, there's no word to preserve the historical memories of, um, like, like, for example, in Namibia during the time of the Second Reich, um, one, of, one of the indigenous tribes was um, liquidated. And, uh, and so when, when the word colonialism now uh, is only thought of as an unequal trade relationship, then, then, then what, what exactly is the vocabulary left to, to try to remember those events? And I and I exactly. agree. With, I, I also I also just 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 as a side sidebar, I, what I found really valuable in in your in your piece was making the point that that conservation itself isn't some kind of morally safe category in which we can park our sympathies. You know, kind of frequently conservation is seen is seen as this kind of this unalloyed good that um, that has no connection to history. It's just simply people working for good you know, kind of outside of any kind of context. And, you know, kind of the, the, the fact that you managed to embed Jane Goodall's work in the kind of colonial context that made it possible, um, you know, kind of, I think don't, it, it doesn't take away from Jane Goodall's good work because I think she she does amazing work and she has, has done amazing work. But that work happened within a context, um, you know, kind of, and, and I think just simply highlighting that context was very valuable. I found it very valuable. Well, I... Uh, with with that that piece about Jane Goodall, I I just felt now that I was far too harsh in in essentially calling her a colonist, um, <laughs> and and when when you know her point was not in the form of an essay. It was not like the the former Nigerian bank governor, who certainly did have an agenda when he wrote that piece in the Financial Times. And th- certainly fought out his argument. Uh, you know, Jane Goodall was just, you know, probably I'm guessing expressing, you know, anger about poaching. And and I get the sense that, and a lot of us feel this, that there's this sense of helplessness that's going on right now. That we see in front of our eyes the rhinos and the elephants vanishing, and we we don't see governments in Asia doing enough. To, to stop it. There's a lot of symbolism, there's a lot of ivory crushes, but there isn't really enough being done to, to really bring this to an end. And there's the sense from environmentalists like Jane Goodall, who, which a lot of people feel uh, in Africa and beyond, of that the inevitability that these animals, these precious, precious animals are going to disappear from our planet because of traditions that, that we can't control. Um, you talked about that time is a very important concept here, and time is not on our side. Time is certainly not on uh, the environment side, but also time is our enemy. And, and let me just read a quote, and I'd like you to, to kind of comment on this. You said, it's common for critics to mislabel China a colonist because decolonization happened decades ago, and with historical memories of the era fading, the use of the term becomes less rigorous. This is what Cobus pointed out. And then you go on to say, however, Goodall should know better. 
She's lived in East Africa for five decades and witnessed the transition from colonialism firsthand. Is that part of the essay that you regret a little bit for attacking her? Because in my point of view is that people of Goodall's generation um, lack oftentimes the ability to see beyond the binary colonialism or not colonialism. That's the only way they know how to frame things. Whereas I see younger people, uh, particularly in Africa and in China, have a much more nuanced approach to, 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 to these concepts, and, and they don't adhere to the, um, to the traditional definitions of colonialism, imperialism, which were really 19th, 18th century uh, definitions. What I probably want to, uh, what I want to back away from is, um, I, you know, I, I, I linked her to the power structure of colonialism, and I, I, I try to, you know, too strongly put her as an actor in colonialism, and and that's something that I wanted to, you know, I would now want to step away from. Um, you know, she. There, there's of course no no evidence at all that uh, she she had she shared the opinions of of of, of those um, people in her so- social circle and uh, and so I I just want to delink those two things. How how did the reaction that that you got from from the article? How did that kind of uh, you know kind of influence the way that you that you understand? The way that the world thinks about China-Africa relations did did, did that kind of um, the kind of pushback that you got from all of these these commenters on on the Times? Um, how, how did, what kind of view did that give you of, of of how the whole the whole situation is seen outside in the outside world? Well, I mean, there were numerous um, responses from readers at the Times, but um, I, I very few of them, I think, actually read the article. <laughs> Um, the, the 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 Times online readership, you know, it, it it's not like a Business Day or or like a, the Mail and Guardian, um, and and so there was not so much any sort of analytical response, but but just uh, general grievances against uh, maybe the, the the title of the article. Um, so I I, I mean it, it, that didn't make me really reflect on the article, but but just looking at it again, I I, I think I, I came off too strongly in in personally uh, attacking her or maybe insinuating that her uh, close relationship to um, to uh, you know an, an insidious power structure that existed uh, five decades ago. The article is on the Times website. It's uh, Goodall distorts history in calling China's African policies colonialism. Uh, Kai Xue, you are, in my opinion, part of the new generation of young people, both in Africa and in China, who are really adding a lot to the debate. So your your regrets aside, I think it's a very interesting article for people to read. Um, and uh, if people want to follow some of your other writing and your other reading, is there any way online that they can they can stay in touch with you? Uh, well, I, I'm I'm not really on social media or or promoting myself that way. But uh, I'll, I'll keep on writing and um, keep in touch. Well, you have a very good excuse, given that you're in Beijing behind the Great <laughs> Firewall, where it's not exactly easy to be on social media. So uh, uh, Kai Shui is a project finance lawyer based in Beijing who works, uh, who's, who's in the media quite a bit, uh, who is a, who's a great thinker on China-Africa relations, particularly from a Chinese point of view. And he advises Chinese companies uh, in Africa on their various investments. So we're just so grateful you were able to join us today. 
Um, and, and thank you so much for having me. And Kobus, if people want to follow you and stay in touch with what you are doing, you are definitely on social media. What's the best way for them to, uh, to, to connect? You'll see me on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Um, and I comment and post there frequently. Um, and I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well. I'm over at E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting the top China in Africa headlines almost every day. More importantly, we're on Facebook. Both Kobus and I are, t- are updating the page and moderating the discussions. 162,000 followers now. We're really just amazed uh, by by how large this community is getting. Uh, Facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Um, finally, the podcast. Uh, best way to find us is right over on iTunes. Just look for China Africa Project. Again, we crossed a, a really exciting milestone this month, over 50,000 downloads a month, uh, doing uh, almost uh, 20,000 a week right now. So it's, it's going up very, very quickly. Um, so our numbers have, have just spiked. So, Cobus, we can't actually figure out why the numbers have gone up, but we're, we're thrilled that people are listening. Yeah, we, we, we like them going up for whichever reason. <laughs> and, uh, and, and again, for those of you who are new to the show and you really haven't heard what we do, I hope today's show is an example. Uh, both Cobus and I, we, we don't have an agenda. We are not partisan. Uh, sometimes I go too far and, and, and I'm overly critical and, and borderline rude, uh, which, like uh, Kai Shue, will come back and offer a little bit of regret and we'll move on. So, uh, But <laughs> that's how we run it here. And we'd love to hear from you. If you've got a point of view, if you've got something to say, you can post a message on our Facebook page or DM us on Twitter. Uh, there's lots of different ways to get in touch with us, but we'd like to have you on the show, particularly young people and students. We, we invite if you're writing a paper, doing research, or in the case of Kai Shue, uh, you're, just, uh, you're, you're actually involved in the industry and you're writing excellent essays. So until next time, we'll be back with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>